This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. So on the floor, uh, I found a huge head of a lion lying outside of the entrance next to a torso of a horse from the monument of Haile Selassie. Both lying just outside the entrance to the palace. It's like a memory of a different era. And I think it also tells a different story about the emperor itself. Welcome to In Our City. You're listening to Imperial Voice. Are you there, Tozin? Are you with us? I am absolutely with you. Fantastic. Tozin, we've recovered Tozin from the clutches of the NHS. Are you feeling fantastic again? I'm feeling better on the way. Better on the way. Good. We've got a special guest today, Karen Kuhnberg. Karen is an architectural researcher and a curator who trained as an architect in Jerusalem and who has a lot of really interesting insights about his Imperial Majesty. Karen, welcome. Hi, thank you very much. Um, so thrilled to be here. How would you sort of introduce your, your, your professional work and your, and your interest in Haile Selassie and his, and his history and legacy? Um, it's a good question, because I think um, um, I'm interested in the mix of um, how history is affecting architecture and also how we can learn about history through architecture and also how we can read and write sites. Um, and I think in a way, um, I was so excited to arrive for the first time to the Fairfield House, just because um, I've been uh, researching and um, working a lot about um, the relationship between Jerusalem and Ethiopia, and and also about uh, Ethiopian buildings in Jerusalem, um, as well as my um, former practice was mainly about um, um, architecture exhibitions um, in museums. So I worked in several museums and um, uh, curated um, several uh, exhibitions, and I think also the Fairfield House is kind of an amazing combination between um, a, a museum for his majesty as well as a, a vivid community center. And I think the house itself tells an amazing story about history and about like phases of history, but also about um, today. Um, and I think also it was uh, the the last building that I visited um, that was owned and led by um, Haile Selassie. Um, so before that, earlier this year, I visited um, um, his imperial palace in Massawa. And also, of course, I visited um, the buildings in Jerusalem. 
uh, especially the one that he uh, stayed during his exile um, in Jerusalem. Um, so the, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by, by your journey and all the different areas uh, of expertise about Haile Selassie and architecture. So your story starts in Jerusalem. Um, it's a bit more complicated, but... Uh... It does feel, feel complicated. Explain to Tozin. I tried to explain uh, uh, your, your, your sort of um, life journey, but I didn't do a very good job. So, so perhaps, perhaps you could explain that to us. Yeah, I think also I felt like I was the guest um, at the Fairford House coming from Jerusalem. So when right. I situated myself, I felt like each time that I introduced myself in the house, um, I was also telling my story and how I got the Fairfield House, but I guess I'm not the only one that has a different route, you know, in Indiana, like end up to the Fairfield House in a different life story. Well, on a radio program such as now, you come across as Francophone, so I think people would think that we're perhaps talking with a French person or, or perhaps a French Canadian, but you'll, you'll need to explain that to us. Uh, no, just because I lived uh, um, uh, two years ago in Montreal, but this is an, a different story. So does that mean uh, that the English that you picked up was 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 from French speakers? Because uh, perhaps, yeah. wouldn't you say Karen sounds French? I mean, let's be honest. Uh, what I say she sounds? I, I think she sounds, um, um, she has that international accent. International accent. So, Yes, which is, um, uh, yeah, a uh, miasma. Uh, <laughs> a weird combination of mixed. Um, not a miasma, not a, not a negative word. I, if, if miasma is negative, shoot me in the head. Uh, um, but a no, combination no. of different uh, flavours. You can hear hints of this and, and a bit of that and, and all that. So Karen, I made a compliment, so thank you. I paint a picture of us of your history, because I still haven't quite got it. If you could just paint a picture for us, that would be really lovely. Um, yeah, so um, let's start. When I was uh, 20 years old, I traveled for, to Ethiopia for the first time. And I was completely amazed by, by the culture, by the buildings. And, um, and also I visited in Lalibela, which is kind of the new Jerusalem. Um, it's a uh, stone carved um, uh, monasteries in the north of Ethiopia and afterwards I decided to study architecture and uh, in Jerusalem I kind of um, I'm not sure if to say rediscovered because the building was always there but I saw them in a new light after my trip to uh, Ethiopia so also not a lot of people um, um, in Israel, know um, the fact that um, the emperor of Ethiopia built in the end of the 19th century several buildings um, in Jerusalem as part of the other like massive building outside of the old city uh, as part of uh, Germany, France, um, um, Italy efforts to um, get a hold of the Holy Land. Ethiopia was just part of those um, uh, empires. Um, and I think this is quite an interesting way of looking at things and especially to put Ethiopia in the same line of all the other empires. Um, and especially in Jerusalem case. Um, and then 
I also understand the more complex relationship um, with Israel and Ethiopia at the time, especially in the 60s afterwards, um, in the matter of the built environment and development and how it's related to foreign affairs issues. So the, architect the architecture itself, it's never just the building alone, has um, a lot of politics involved and as I said before, a foreign affair relations. And I think also you, you probably know this as, as now in the Fairfield House that you're also dealing with the politics behind the ownership of um, the building itself. Uh, <laughs> you're not wrong there. <laughs> it's true. So I'm fascinated by this. I, I had no idea about the other countries building in Jerusalem. And, and, and do tell us more about that. And what sort of buildings were the Ethiopians building in Jerusalem and at the end of the 19th century? So I think one of the most famous uh, monasteries is Deir Sultan. And it is like built long, way long ago. Um, I think it was dated um, the earliest evidence of, of any um, a building or ownership of Ethiopians um, in, in Jerusalem. It's dated like 800 years ago. Oh. Um, and there is Sultan, it's an Ethiopian monastery. It's almost like a village on the rooftop of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. It still exists until today. For nowadays, um, Ethiopian still has the key. It's kind of a long um, legal issues of ownership. For the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which I guess in the 19th century was still the same thing as the Coptic Church in Egypt, is Jerusalem a sacred site for them? Or is it, yes. Was, was it politically expeditious for them to try and have a, a presence in Jerusalem? Yes, I think there are two layers of it. Um, first of all, the Asian Ethiopians and Zion, like Jerusalem, um, is uh, completely connected. Um, it's based on the legend of uh, King Solomon mm -hmm. and the Queen of Sheba. When um, the Queen of Sheba, that she came, of course, um, from uh, Abyssinia, from um, Ethiopia, um, and she came to Jerusalem and um, she she fell in love and with King Solomon and he fell in love with her as well. and. Their son, uh, uh, Menelik I, was born. And Menelik I was kind of the first in the Solomonic um, uh, legacy. Um, and as you know, uh, Haile Selassie was uh, the last one, the last emperor, as we know for now. So I think the, the, the legend of, of uh, Menelik um, and also the fact that he returned to visit his father and take took back the the arch the ark the ark of the covenant yeah exactly yeah. what do you find so um i mean i i i did a very um a small amount of work unfortunately because i've been a little bit unwell as william entered um so I was. I went to have a look at um, some of the architecture that we um, are going to discuss today, and it's beautiful. Um, it seems, you know, quite Ethiopian. 
what was it about it? What, what is it about this architecture that really engages you? I think mainly because uh, Ethiopia was such a strong force in Jerusalem. Yes. But never really got the credit for it. Okay. And also the maintenance of the buildings themselves and the way that also for um, the Ethiopian Jews that are living um, in, in Jerusalem and Israel at the moment, they're not aware of their, their history. Oh, wow. And the fact that uh, of their um, country, homeland country history um, in Jerusalem. Um, so I think the narrative in Israel at the moment, it's quite problematic of, uh, maybe I'm getting more into politics here, I think we have, to, we have to acknowledge, I think, that it's a problematic situation, but I, I'm, I'm very interested to learn about the Ethiopian presence in Israel-Palestine uh, and really intrigued to understand how, how they sit in that complex and, and you know, difficult uh, contemporary history. Yeah, I think for the hegemonic um, narrative of Israel is the fact, if I'm just putting the occupation on the side for a second. Yes, sure. And yeah, sure. Um, we can also talk about it in a different way. But um, so Israel during um, the 80s and the 90s um, told the story that they saved the Ethiopian Jews from Ethiopia. And right. this is a completely false um, um, uh, story that um, they needed to be saved. Uh, the Ethiopian Jews in Ethiopia wanted to 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 come to Israel to Zion at their own will, mm -hmm. and no no one needed to to save and uh, and also I think they kind of Israel asked to erase the entire of um, the multi like cultural um, histories of many immigrants mm -hmm. that arrived to Israel in order to create this. Um, one Zionist um, uh, profile of a person. Mm -hmm. And in a way, those Ethiopian buildings create this kind of uh, a strong identity of their motherland. And I think the way that you can really read about those things about in the history books and uh, the history of, of the architecture in Jerusalem itself, uh, so I think it's kind of this chapter is missing. Karen, I remember um, uh, it must have been in the 80s um, during, I think it was the, the famines. Mm -hmm. And oh. I remember very clearly the watching live the um, rescue. So that's why I sort of uh, put air quotes. Or so it seemed to us of that the Ethiopians, um, the Jewish Ethiopians. And I remember, so this is what, 20 odd years ago. Um, and I remember uh, as someone who, um, you know, is just, you know, not particularly familiar with sort of Jewish history um, or Judaism, um, being surprised as to the, um, to the extent, to the, to the depth of, sort of Judaism in Ethiopia. Does that, does, so, so you're saying is that um, even now, is there a sense that there's a sort of bit of um, separation, that they're not completely accepted as 
Jewish? Or is it that they are accepted as Jewish on the condition that they erase or kind of erase their other past? Um, I think it's quite similar to all the immigrants um, outside of uh, Europe, uh, Central Europe, that needed to kind of prove their uh, Judaism yeah. or Jewish origin. Um, and as you said, like it wasn't really known somewhere else. Um, but it's kind of the same with Yemenite Jews, but also Russian Jews. There are questions about their origin just because they're not in Central Europe. Um, but I think in a way, those kind of, um, if I'm returning back to Jerusalem, um, the evidence of the buildings that are still standing still in the center of Jerusalem, telling a different type of history and telling a different type of, of power of the empire. And, and I think this is quite interesting that those uh, buildings that are not only churches and monasteries, it's also people that are built for um, purpose of rent, um, similar to the wakf that um, those apartment buildings are being rented and the money is returning to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church in order to maintain themselves for the future years. And I think in a way it's quite interesting to connect it also to the Fairfield House. Um, it's such an important legacy and how to maintain also for future years. So what you're telling us is that there are buildings standing in Jerusalem that tell a really important story about Ethiopian Jews that somehow for decades the prevailing contemporary politics and culture in that part of the world has somehow been trying to erase. It's really fascinating. Yes, but I think also not just the Ethiopian Jews, because um, also uh, Christian, uh, Ethiopian, mm. um, and Pope's okay. Muslim, it's all... I think it's also His Majesty was... Um, he mentioned it several times that the Ethiopians are are Ethiopians in, in, in their culture and not, um, not by their religious. So uh, there's a multi-faith, a multi-faith um, multi Ethiopian presence in Jerusalem. It is really fascinating. I can completely see why you've made it your life's work. Karen, should we listen to the first track you suggested for us, which I think is, it is Salam, uh, Yes, it? exactly. It yeah. is. So just Salam. tell us about, yes, tell us about this. I, I, I had a quick listen. I'm so ignorant. I don't even know which language it's in. Is it significant which language it's in and which, which part of Ethiopian culture it derives from? Um, it's in Amharic um, mm -hmm. and Gidealo is an Israeli um, uh, singer-songwriter um, originally from Ethiopia and several of his songs are in Hebrew but um, also his latest album is in Amharic. Gidealo is amazing and uh, I think it would be really a privilege to put some tunes um, in, in the Imperial uh, Voice Radio. <laughs> Yes, I'm 
Christianity so yes. um, I think also it's kind of those two things together one is the legend of um, the Queen of um, Sheba and the King of Solomon but the second is also the relation to Christianity and the fact that they wanted to also get a hold on the Holy Land uh, yeah yeah actually you know Karen you you your explanation um, has actually brought some clarity um, because uh, what you're saying really is that, um, if I may dare to um, <laughs> summarize, is that uh, there's a conscious policy to basically erase all other histories about Jerusalem in order to legitimize um, Israel's claim to having Jerusalem as its capital. If you have the most, not just the most dominant history, but maybe the only history, then it becomes less problematic in claiming ownership of it and justification of that ownership. So what they're doing to, um, or the lack of regard for uh, the architecture in um, Ethiopian architecture in Jerusalem is not just about Ethiopia, it's about erasing or de-signifying everyone else and and you know building themselves up is that is that kind of or oh, have I not quite got it right? Um, yeah, kind of. I think Jerusalem is is kind of a bit more complex uh, city because I think it's a matter of power. I think the Ethiopians at the moment has the less power. Um, in the kind of the like the game of controlling or getting a hold um, in the land of Jerusalem, um, so I think if you think about the power dynamic between the different nations and the money also to support those kind of buildings and properties, so maybe Ethiopia has less power um, in this game. But I think. Um, in general, it's just Jerusalem is a city that each nation is trying to get a hold more land and more property. If if I was in, um, say, uh, 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 an Ethiopian person or anyone really, and um, I was being chased by the police, if I ran <laughs> into any of these buildings, would I could I claim that I was suddenly on Ethiopian land and I couldn't be arrested, like as you can, you know, um, 
other maybe um, embassies and stuff around the world. Does the, do these buildings have that status? Uh, no. Uh, one of the buildings used to be the former consul of Ethiopia, uh, consulate uh, of Ethiopia, uh, but it's not exactly the same. Uh, what is quite interesting that it, the Ethiopian church, um, uh, they began in the monastery itself outside of the city, the old, um, uh, the old city of Jerusalem is built like a compound. And there are many uh, cases in history that it served as a shelter. And, and also as um, the refugees from Eritrea, they found in the Ethiopian church at the time before even the peace agreement in 2018. So in a way, even if it's not official, the Ethiopian buildings serve as a shelter for, for many reasons and many occasions. Yeah, even if it's not a kind of a traditional um, sense of, of the embassy. So just to get a feel, I mean, <clears throat> Jerusalem and Addis, if, if they have these kind of ancient links, like Christianity went to Ethiopia first, but I mean, it's a long way, isn't it? I mean, it's 4,000 kilometers distance. It's, it's many weeks travel, isn't it? Um, yeah, but think about also the fact that His Majesty, before he came to Bath, his first stop was to Jerusalem. Mm. It was crucial for him uh, in so many ways, also as a re uh, religious person, but also men in restrict uh, Christian. Um, it was so important for them to make the first stop to Jerusalem. Presumably they went by sea. They, I mean, presumably the main travel between Jerusalem and Addis would be up the Red Sea, would it? <laughs> yeah, so from Addis in uh, 1936, uh, they traveled to Djibouti mm -hmm. and uh, They've been assisted by uh, the British Empire to provide them a, a boat, mm -hmm. uh, a ship, uh, in order to arrive to Haifa. So, Karen, what do we know about Haile Selassie's time in Jerusalem after he had to leave Ethiopia under duress? Yeah. So, from Addis, he travelled to Djibouti, um, and then from Djibouti, uh, he sailed to Haifa. Haifa is a port city in the north of Palestine at the time. And from Haifa, um, first of all, uh, it was accepted by a huge crowd of people that got really excited by the emperor arriving um, to Palestine. Um, and from Haifa, it took a train to Jerusalem. I think this is quite interesting that uh, it has a famous photo of him going off the train wearing all white as well as uh, accompanied with uh, Menon and their dog Lulu at the time. It's, it's kind of an epic photograph of them entering the Holy Land. From there, they stayed in, in a hotel, in, uh, in King David's hotel for six days. And what is really interesting that afterwards, they rented um, a house in Talbia. Um, Talbia neighborhood today to be kind of to situate yourself um, in the current politics, it just across the Prime Minister um, Bibi Netanyahu uh, residency at the moment. Okay, wow. So it's so kind of... Uh, right in the heart of the city. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, the... yeah, exactly. So they rented the house. Um, the house is named um, Abkarius House. 
Um, it was built in 1934, so just like two years before they arrived. It was a, a private residency of Dr. Nasheeb Abkarius Bey. Uh, he was kind of a Jerusalem lawyer, um, origin from Egypt. And he bought an amazing house. The exact location is uh, 6 Belmaimon Boulevard. And they stayed there uh, longer, and it was kind of a, a place for him. I'm not sure the same as in Fairfield House, more to rest. It was a place for him to host all his, all of his uh, press conferences. And it was a place for him to address um, the world and the, also the kind of the inner politics of Jerusalem and the people in, in power. And when he, he left Jerusalem to London and then to Bath, some of his family stayed in the house, but also many of his consultants or like part of the government stayed in Jerusalem for the time, time of exile. So effectively, he had government in exile first in Jerusalem, and then the part of it transferred to Bath. I bet, no, I bet very few people in Bath know of this connection between Bath and Jerusalem. Really? I, w I would be very surprised. I think, I mean, the, the amount, it, it would be a wonderful thing to bring this history to light. I mean, effectively, the Ethiopian government in exile, from what you're saying, resided in Jerusalem for a bit, and uh, he did his public speeches and statements, and then it relocated to Bath. It's a very strong connection, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And I think also, uh, maybe it's uh, another anecdote of history, but in 1938, Menon, the empress, um, she, she felt like the, the life in Bath was just too harsh on her. It was too cold. And she uh, departed from Bath to Jerusalem because of climatic reasons. And it is it is pretty tough here, yeah, I've got to say, Karen. I've, <laughs> I, my wife and I often think we should do the same. So, so they lived separately with her in Jerusalem from 1938. Mm -hmm. And then there was the story, wasn't there, that of, of sending the replica of the Ark of the Covenant from Jerusalem so they could create the first Ethiopian Orthodox Church in the UK, which they did in the greenhouse at Fairfield House. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is also part of the strong connection and also the fact that His Majesty and men was very much uh, uh, religious people and they, in order to gain a, a faith in returning to Addis Ababa after the Italian occupation, uh, so they needed the faith of God. They needed mm. uh, a place to pray. They needed to um, to do whatever they could in that sense. So it's also to ask for the for the Abona in, in in Jerusalem to send over whether it's uh, the the Tebot. Is it called a Tabot? Tebot, yeah. Yeah, what is also quite interesting that um, Amharic uh, is also um, a Semitic, um, Semitic language? Uh, Semitic, I think. Semitic, okay, sorry. I'm going yes, to say it, it's, it's, it's one of those complicated words because it has quite a broad meaning, but in common use, it's, it's used, I mean, like with the Labour Party and their issue of anti-Semitism, that is felt to be a hostility towards Jewish people. But I think it's a broader word than that, because it does also embrace um, uh, Arabic people, doesn't it? Um, it? It depends on yeah the type of language that is yeah. not Latin. 
Yeah. Um, so maybe I'm not going to deal with so, um, it. Amharic, <laughs> like what, like Hebrew? Hebrew, yeah, exactly. Is a, a Semitic language. Does it use the yeah. same alphabet? No, no, no. Uh, it's completely different, but the word tebot is quite similar to Hebrew, and this is quite interesting as well. Okay. Um, listen, we, we, we could, we could now, what, what I suggest we do now is I suggest we listen to your second track because this conversation is, is really gripping and there's lots of directions we could go in. Let's listen to another piece of music and then let's talk about uh, Haile Selassie's time in Bath in Britain and let's talk about your impressions of Fairfield House and your architectural project at Fairfield House. So your second track is Helen Melez. So Karen, tell us about this track, Helen Melez, Simatki. So this is an amazing uh, song by uh, maybe one of the most famous Eritrean singer and actress at the moment. Um, and she is singing a song about Masawa and the way she is um, yearning. No, it's not the right word. Yeah, good word. <laughs> So Ellen Mellis is an Eritrean singer and actress, and she she sings a song about um, her yearning to the days of Masawa and the fact that Masawa today is highly damaged due to the um, to the war, okay. the Eritrean independence war, and yeah. it still kind of remain in the same um, ruins state. Fantastic! So a new Eritrean music. <laughs> Because uh, I, I looked at the YouTube comments on this and you just can't make any sense of it at all. It's either just saying, Helen, I love you, or it's in a language I don't understand. So thank you for that introduction. Here, here is um, Helen Melez.
production, isn't it? So is she singing in Eritrean? Eritrean. But we're all very mindful of what's happening there now. And, and... Uh, she used to be part, and maybe also today, but um, part of the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, oh, is right. known as uh, EPLF. Right. And she's singing a song about her yearning to Masawa and the fact that today uh, the city is still uh, remain the same um, ruined state for almost uh, 30 years and it's such a beautiful city and the same is with the imperial um, palace in Masawa uh, it remains in the same uh, condition since the Eritrean independence war. So if I've understood correctly from your introduction, she, this is a, a, an actor and singer and radical, highly political, but peaceful and yearning for the restoration of, of the city and the community. Is that about right? Yes. So right. tell us about Masawa. I don't even know about Masawa. Can you, can you give us the sort, of, the sort of entry level guide to Masawa and the palace there? Um, yes, I can share with you from my knowledge, but it's not a lot, I have okay. to say. Um, it's more of my um, impression from the site, less than a proper full historian scope sure. of the place. Sure, but you visited you need to, Yeah, you need to ask someone else for that. Uh, maybe in Eritrean, that, um, from the Eritrean community in the UK. Um, but I can also, I can only tell from my impression of the site. Uh, because you visited. Yeah. Um, a year ago, uh, in January, I visited Eritrea uh, for the first time. And since the peace agreement and something that I really wanted to, um, to visit Eritrea. Um, so Masawa, it's, it's such a beautiful city. On, on the coast of the Red Sea. And what was really amazing by, by the city itself that you can still see the beauty of, of the city it was kind of a leisure um, uh, site for um, um, the, the, the upper class of, 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 of the capital. So they would travel there um, during, during um, during the winter in order to enjoy the hot summer days of Masawa. Um, and His Majesty, um, during, um, during the time that Eritrea was part of the Federation of Ethiopia until, um, until actually in 91, but he, he used it as his palace at the coastline. And um, it's, just, it's just an amazing, um, amazing, uh, well-decorated um, compound uh, that was built uh, by a Swiss um, uh, politician. No, it's not, really, it's not really a politician. It's like uh, he's a traveler, but I'm not sure how to pronounce it. In a... I think I'm looking at it now on, on Werner. Uh... View. Yes, it's got sort of, is it, has it got like sort of Gothic arches and a wonderful staircase? Is that... Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's gothic, but... Um, or I mean, that's slightly okay. sort of rounded, uh, slightly pointed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And compl as you say, it's sort of bombed, bombed and looks, it looks sort of derelict, but it looks a very, very noble building. Yeah. Um, 
I think I'm kind of struggling with the politics of it because it's it's quite complicated to to. Listen, let's not get into the politics. Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's, let's come to both. Can you describe it for our viewers? What, what yes. does it mean? So the, the Imperial Palace um, in Masawa, it was built originally in the kind of first date in 1872 uh, by a Swiss traveler that um, uh, stayed in, in Africa, but also mainly in Eritrea at the time. Um, and afterwards it was used um, and occupied by Haile Selassie during uh, the time that um, Eritrea was part of Ethiopia um, until 91. Um, and it's a rectangular, uh, luxurious uh, palace uh, with many uh, rooms. It's all um, around uh, a courtyard that is um, covered by the dome. Uh, the dome is uh, the last time that I've been there. It's completely ruined, um, so it's almost like an open courtyard that leads to all the rooms. It's highly dangerous, um, uh, even just to enter. With um, holes on the floor and mm. um, everything is just ruined. And I think the sad thing about uh, about, I think, the situation at the moment, it is almost impossible to um, preserve and to restore uh, the architecture, the amazing architecture. So mm. it's almost doomed to be uh, demolished. Mm. Um, and what's also quite interesting is there is some, let's call it remains of, the former history of the place. So on the floor, uh, I found um, a huge head of a lion mm. just lying outside of the entrance next to a torso of a horse from the monument of Haile Selassie in, um, in another location of Masawa that was bombed during the War of Independence. And they're both lying just outside of the entrance to the palace. It's mm. almost like a memory of a different era, but also the fact that it stayed there for nearly 30 years since the war. Um, and I think it also tells a different story about the emperor itself um, elsewhere. Um, of course, outside of Ethiopia, outside of, of Jerusalem and outside um, of the UK um, and I think also you mentioned about um, the webinar that you're going to do next week if our, we first, our first about, public meeting yes very exciting yeah yes <laughs> so if you refer to the the public meeting about how how to tell the legacy of his majesty and yeah I, I think it's really important for us to, uh, associated with Fairfield House to understand what our part is in that wider legacy and the connections that it makes. I mean, what you describe of the Palace of Masawa is uh, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? To think of it being lost and to think of those those um, sort of precious, sacred, historic monuments just lying uh, out in the open air, uh, un untouched for 30 years, with people just not appreciating their 
their, their, their global value. Listen, um, let, let's in the last 10 minutes that we've got, let's quickly talk about Fairfield House because you've come to Fairfield House, you've got an impression of it, you've got your, your architect's view of it, of somebody who's seen architectural heritage associated with Haile Selassie in Eritrea and in Ethiopia and in Jerusalem. What's your impression of Fairfield House? And would you tell us about the project you're doing there? Yeah, so first of all, um, my first impression of the house were the people, I have to say. Mm. Um, the people that are involved in the house and make it the house that it is today. And so I think beyond the walls and um, the trees outside and um, all the kind of the interior, just the people that are kind of making it the place it is today. And I think this is also something that we need to kind of keep in mind when we think about architecture and we think about legacy. It's also the one that are keeping it alive. Mm. Um, and afterwards, I was just like amazed by the fact that the house welcomes all communities and each one has a room or a space and also they're sharing spaces together. Um, and I think it's also just an amazing opportunity to learn um, a different part of Bath history through the house or through um, the artifact that you, you put on exhibiting, um, your, uh, yeah, sorry, exhibiting inside the house. And I learned quite a lot about his time in exile through the tour of the house. And I felt also very much privileged that Chris um, um, explained to me and gave me, to, uh, gave me a tour to the house. And I felt like um, it's such an amazing opportunity that should be shared with more people. Mm. And um, yeah, I think this is the house is, is a great place um, to, to learn about um, other histories in the UK. Um, uh, I'm really pleased that you focus on the life of the house because I think that's what is unique for us about Fairfield in Bath. It's, it's sort of that Caribbean welcome that caring, the the passion of the Rastafari and the celebrations that they have, the imperial heritage. There's nowhere else in Bath like that. There are plenty of other 19th century, you know, buildings built out of Bath stone. And in architectural terms, I mean, it's perfectly respectable, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a decent building, but it's, I mean, you wouldn't, you know, travel halfway around the world to see it as architecture, would you? Uh, no. No, I mean, it's okay and nice. No, it's nice, it's pleasant. Um... But I think we also need to remember that mainly art architecture is how how people are using it. Mm. And, mm. and I think for me, maybe I'm a kind of a, a false architecture, but architecture is a shell to contain uh, people's life with it. Mm. But I think the way that you, you like also design the interior of the house um, tells a lot about the, the the possibilities of the house to be more than just a show and to be a home for many communities uh, in Bals, but also I felt really at home when I arrived there and 
I'm not from Bath and I'm not from the, from the UK as well. And I felt immediately at home and and I think also I want to contribute back uh, to the house and to the community. And therefore I think maybe um, about the project that I'm thinking of, I was talking to Pauline about um, creating maybe a virtual tour to the house in order for it to be uh, shared with more people, especially during those uh, difficult times when we are facing the pandemic and to arrive to the house is more difficult than ever. And whether it's something that we can share to, to other, to, with other people as well, uh, worldwide. I think you'd bring a very distinctive um, welcome to that and a very distinctive perspective. I think the, the, the actual, the life, for me, Fairfield House is the most welcoming place in Bath. And I think that's because of the work of Bemska and how they look after old people and just the sort of patience and, and sort of um, uh, the vibe. I, th I think it's really a Caribbean vibe that is so, is so welcoming. But as you say, in, in lockdown, one can't see it. From around the world, one can't see it. As, as an architect, when you saw it, did you think this is a building in jeopardy? Did you, I mean, you've been to Masawa, you've seen the state of the palace there. Did you look at Fairfield House and have concerns about the state of it? Um, no, I think in general it's it's well kept. Um, there are many main renovations maybe in the future that should be done. Um, maybe also the kind of the maintenance of roof, the roof itself. And well, here's the thing: yeah. scaffolding just showed up this morning. Literally, no one told us. A bunch of lorries showed up, and they're putting in scaffolding to repair the drains and the slates. Amazing. It, it, astonishing i agree uh, we had no idea it's, it's that's brilliant that's absolutely brilliant well as long as they do everything they need to be doing while it's there um and that'll be a huge expense um but 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 very very sort of necessary and i think also maybe you can um share a bit more from your perspective but i think the support of the council to keep this place alive and be supported by by the council um it's quite a crucial thing. It is a crucial thing. I think the council, under, they understand that they have something of great value. They have very pressing concerns and financial uh, issues and problems. I think the perspective that an expert like you can bring, which, which connects it with other parts of the world and which, which places its importance in a broader context, I think that's really powerful. It, so just last month, the council political leader and the month before the council official sort of director responsible both visited the house first time in both cases and our MP also visited the house in October. So I think there's a rising sort of awareness and an understanding that we need to transition to a, a sort of financial sustainable model where the house gets the maintenance that it deserves. I'm very concerned that in doing that, I mean, say, say that monies are raised to do a proper heritage restoration of the house. It mustn't lose those qualities you're talking about. And the life of the house is, is, is what has to be preserved above all, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the life and the spirit and the quality, that sense that each community has their own room, but also that there are shared spaces and it's a place for shared activity. Exactly. I think also the transformation from, um, for example, His Majesty bedroom, that the transformation in one day, it could be... Um, 
the museum of Haile Selassie, for example, but also it could be um, an exercise room for one of the elderly uh, women's group. But it could also be um, a meeting um, a meeting room for one of the Rastafari's um, groups. Mm. Um, so you've done a full three D scan of the building, which which. Um, which could form the basis of a, a virtual tour, virtual introduction. Is that right? Um, yes. So I've used the, uh, I uh, borrowed uh, a LiDAR scanner, um, which creates a point cloud. Um, it means, uh, maybe it's, okay, sorry, it's too complicated. <laughs> um, but essentially, specialist tools to create a 3D representation of the building online. Yeah, so it's based on LiDAR um, uh, scanning technique that creates uh, from about 40 scans, a 3D model of the entire house. Um, and I'm still processing it, but I think it would be quite amazing to have some visuals to your amazing uh, content, to be honest. <laughs> well, we look forward to that very, very much. Tozin, are there, are there final thoughts or questions that you've got for Karen? Well, I was just going to say to um, um, Karen that I don't know if she, she knows that in Nigeria, there is a group, the Igbo group, who believe that they're part of the lost tribe of Israel mm -hmm. and practice Judaism. I don't know if you've uh, ever heard of them. Yes. It's also in uh, in Uganda. There is also another group, and but I've met only the the group in Uganda, but not in the one in Nigeria. Um, yeah, they are, they are very um very proud of their Jewish heritage, and um, you know quite uh, often you will see them when you see them. They're not very many, but they walk around with you know the um sorry the skull. And they they really sort of wear their Jewishness as a as a real emblem of pride. I do think that what what you've been exploring is so visual and diverse and connecting. It's really been wonderful to hear it from you. Thank you so much for for for, for joining us. Thank you very much for hosting me. I feel uh, super privileged much, to Karen. be here. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was brilliant. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. No, Karen, it's been great. You, you, you have very much your own pace and your own vibe, and it's a very nice place to be. So I've enjoyed it very much. Our special guest today has been Karen Kuhnberg, who's an architectural researcher and curator who's been looking at Ethiopian architecture associated with his imperial majesty across Eritrea, Ethiopia, in her native city of Jerusalem, and indeed here in Bath. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank we'll, you very we'll, much. Thank uh, you. Tassin, it was really nice to meet you. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to see you. Thank you. Thank you. It'll be thank nice you. to see you in person as well, maybe in the future when to be allowed to meet in person. Yes, I hope so. I hope so. Tassin, it's lovely to have you back on the case. I've missed you. Oh, I missed you too. That has been In Our City. I'm William Heath. And I'm Uluwato Sion Larry. Thank you. Stay tuned to Imperial Voice. Mm -hmm.